W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's cracking peeps? Darren McDuffie here, alias Fat Man, helping you become perfectly healthy and toned and conscious, of course. Today's episode is being brought to you by PerfectlyHealthyAndToned.com. This episode is with Heather K. Jacobson entitled Going Gluten-Free and it is 167. Before we get into the episode and more details about it, I wanted to give you a reminder as I always do about the previous episode I did with Sheila Lewis Ely entitled A Mother's Love. Sheila gives her first-hand experience with vaccinating her son and finding out that he was later diagnosed with autism. If you are a parent out there and you are faced with this decision to vaccinate or not vaccinate, I highly encourage you to listen to this episode. I always want my listeners to make an informed decision before they make a decision. I can't tell you what to do, but I can give you the information and let you listen to it and go out and make your own decision based upon that. Now, Today's episode, again, is 167 with Heather K. Jacobson entitled Going Gluten-Free. Going gluten-free changed my life. I know I probably said this on some episodes, and if you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it again. After playing basketball, I was diagnosed with arthritis in both of my knees. I remember listening to a podcast with William Davis, who has a book called Wheat Belly. And on that podcast, he talked about going gluten-free. I had no idea about what gluten was, but through some research, I found out, decided to eliminate all gluten products from my diet and do this for seven days. And at the end of seven days, I had no more arthritis in my knees. And that convinced me think that was nine or 10 years ago to never eat a piece of bread or never eat gluten containing products again. And I have not done that to this day. So if you're someone out there who might be thinking about going gluten free, do take some time to listen to this episode. And as I said before, make an informed decision. A lot of these symptoms that we are having can sometimes be contributed to food. I'm not saying that this is the magic key. It was for me and it may be for you, but it may be the next step on your journey to get you to be a more healthier you. So without further ado, let's get into Heather K. Jacobson's bio. Heather K. Jacobson is an author, researcher, and founder of the online magazine Stuffed Pepper. She has a Master of Science in Ethnobotany and worked at the National Academy of Sciences. Always fascinated by the endless ways that plants are incorporated into everyday life, she dreamt of roaming jungle forests with indigenous tribal leaders in search of native flora with untold healing properties. Instead, she found herself taming the wilds of nutritional science as she dealt with health issues that no conventional doctor seemed to be able to solve. As she worked to unravel the true science between gluten, grains, and chronic disease, it turns out that maybe Heather is the modern ethnobotanist, not exploring plants in the wilderness, but exploring how removed we have become from the wild and how that has adversely affected our health. Coming up on episode number 167, 
seven entitled Going Gluten-Free with Heather K. Jacobson. Here's what you're going to learn. What does the thyroid need to function properly? How has the wheat of today changed from long ago? It's been a definite change and that's why a lot of people are now gluten sensitive or celiac. Why should you look for the certified gluten-free label? If you're someone who has already gone gluten-free, this probably is very important for you. What is villus atrophy? Why is non-celiac gluten sensitivity just as serious as being celiac? And how has gluten-free change from years ago. I went gluten-free many years ago and there weren't a lot of options, but Heather goes into what's really changed with gluten-free labels. Let's get into episode 167, Going Gluten-Free. Here we go. Heather Jacobson, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being on. Really excited to have you on tonight. Tonight we're talking about Going Gluten-Free, which is your book. And it's something that's near and dear to my heart just simply because I've been gluten-free for about seven or eight years now. And I did a podcast a long time ago about this, but I still think there are some people out there who might be wanting to know why they should eliminate gluten from their diets. But what I normally do, my obligatory question for everyone who comes on the show is how did they start their health journey? So how did you start your health journey, Heather? Uh, yeah, right. So basically, I have had IBS issues pretty much since I was a child. But when it finally came to a head was in 2001. And it's very interesting timing because they say a lot of times that um, stress is a trigger for celiac disease and other autoimmune disorders. And um, it happened to be September 11, 2001. I was in England traveling, working with a study group. And my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, was in Washington, D.C. And I was, you know, watching what was going on there and I couldn't reach him. I was calling him on the phone and I could nobody could reach anybody in, in the country. And so around that time, um, I was also, as I said, traveling with this study group and there was somebody else that was in charge of of our food budget and he bought for the week wonder white bread that we made toast with for breakfast and sandwiches for lunch and pasta for dinner and beer <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was a lot more like refined uh, wheat products than I was used to so all of a sudden a few days after September 11th or maybe it was like that next day or something my hair started falling out in clump. I had like terrible acne on my face and I could not digest anything for days. So it, it took me a little while to associate that it was bread that was causing me problems. But eventually I did find that every time I ate bread, I started to feel sick. And um, and I did a little bit of research, which wasn't really that easy to do because it was back in 2001 and the internet was still in its infancy. But I did come across something called celiac disease. And I was like, huh, that sounds really, you know, very similar to what I have. So long story short, eventually my boyfriend and I reunited um, and he actually proposed to me and I came back to the States and I went to a doctor to talk to them about, you know, what I thought might be celiac disease. And the first doctor I talked to laughed me out of the room and said, oh, you just have, you know, here, take this probiotic and you'll be fine. And actually not probiotic, antibiotic. And, And so I felt dejected. And I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not a doctor. So what do I know? And I went, my husband, my boyfriend and I went out for pizza and beer because like, well, I guess I don't have celiac disease. And well, next thing I know, I felt sick. So it was confirmed in me whether or not, you know, a doctor was going to believe me. My body told me that, no, this stuff is not good for me. So that was the beginning of my journey. But that was in 2001. 
And back then, no, nobody, like I said, even doctors believed me. So it was, you know, hard avoiding it. There was a lot of cooking. Luckily, I loved to cook. So um, I did a lot of cooking at home and basically navigated my way around. But it was usually salads when I went out. Um, so so things have changed a lot since then. But that was my the beginning of my gluten-free journey. So you're, you're actually from the States or you're from? I am from the States. Yes, I'm from the States. I did actually live in Denmark for a while as a child and I took um, classes from, you know, Danish and British teachers. So I've been told I have a bit of an accent. I think it's a smosh of all the places I've lived. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. You mentioned that you were gluten-free in 2001. Mm-hmm. What are some of the changes that you've noticed with gluten-free from 2001? Because I think for me, I, I went gluten-free about 2006 or 2007, I think it, it was. And mm-hmm. I know gluten-free at that time was probably maybe a little bit more advanced. But what are some of the changes that you've, you've seen since gluten-free being when you started in 2001? Yeah, when I started in 2001, I mean, gluten-free pizza crust was like, cardboard and bread was like sandpaper it was really like what's the point (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and in some ways maybe that was a blessing in disguise because it's I mean going gluten-free is so much easier today and there's so many gluten-free options out there but in a a way maybe there's too many temptations because my belief that the gluten-free substitutes that we have today are actually not that much more healthy for you than the original gluten foods. So even though, you know, it wasn't really fun being gluten-free back then, it might have been more healthy. But on the other hand, also people that are gluten sensitive are a lot more accepted today than they were back then. It's just there's just so much more awareness. Back then, nobody believed me. People thought I was crazy or I was just kind of anorexic or overly concerned about my weight, why I couldn't eat wheat. So It's definitely changed as far as culturally being more accepted. But yeah, for anybody that's just starting out and they just want to try a few gluten-free substitutes, there are lots of options to start with. Do you feel like, and I'm going back to just my own personal experience, I remember when I started to go gluten-free, I decided to do it for seven days. And I remember just freaking out because I was like, well, what am I going to eat? My whole world seemed to center around breads and pastas and all of this stuff. And I kept really thinking about, well, what am I going to eat? What can I eat? Or what can I eat? And I was just really focused on what I couldn't eat. But did you panic when you found out that, hey, I I need to do this for my health? Yeah, you know, not so much because it made me feel so ill that it really wasn't worth it for me to have, you know, I, I did miss, I missed pizza and, and I missed croissants and there, and I used to like craft beers, um, which is not good for anybody's belly anyway. So, you know, like again, like I said, maybe it's a blessing in disguise, but I, I, I did miss certain things, but I didn't freak out totally because there, there weren't just, there weren't enough options for me to, to figure out. So I just, instead ate salads you know i ate rice i ate black beans i ate stuff like that i didn't go paleo until much later Mm -hmm. so there were still things that i could do and and maybe in some ways having traveled a lot that helped too because i saw that in other places around the world there isn't necessarily bread at every meal so maybe that helped but i can certainly understand for people that do freak out because you know we are from our first solid food conditioned to eat bread products at every meal 
So it is definitely a big learning curve, and I can see how anybody could freak out about it. Yeah, I did a lot of freaking out. <laughs> but I, I want to ask you this as well. Did you feel like, because I know I used to crave gluten. I used to crave cookies. I would crave breads and all of this stuff. And looking back on it now, I realize that I, why was I craving it when I know it wasn't good for me? And that's something that the body does. Did you find that you would crave it just, and, and, and even though it was bad? And you figured this out a little bit later on. Were you craving gluten at the time that you knew you had some symptoms that arise from it? Yeah. So the interesting thing is when I was, you know, when I got sick in England and I was eating Wonder White bread, which is not what I, how I normally would eat. I usually ate like whole wheat bread or, you know, whole kernel bread. I was always trying to be more healthy or, you know, we thought it was healthier in the end. Maybe it's not that health, much healthier, the whole grains versus the refined grains. But I, I never was used to eating the, the really soft white bread. And once I got sick from that, I was craving that specifically, mm-hmm. the white bread. And, and that's what they say when you develop an allergy. Like a lot of times children that have like dairy allergies crave milk, for instance. So there's something very odd and sinister there. It's just not fair, you know, <laughs> to make us crave it when it's actually like poisonous for us. So yeah, I remember being like, why do I want this white bread so much? <laughs> yeah, I went through that same thing. Do you feel, I guess we should talk about the, the difference in celiac and non-gluten sensitivity. Do you feel like people are still unaware? I know if you're celiac, that's very on, that's kind of on the the bad side, I would say. And then for non-gluten sensitivity, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that's kind of more on the mild side, the major side versus the mild side. But do you feel like there's still people out there who have, who don't know that they're gluten sensitive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even for celiacs, at last check, the statistic was something like 97% of celiacs are still undiagnosed. And that's just celiacs. And that doesn't take into account the gluten sensitive which there's about at least 10 times more people in the world that are gluten sensitive than are celiac. And a lot of people don't even take gluten sensitivity very seriously because, in fact, I would say that it is people do have the idea that gluten sensitivity is more mild compared to celiac disease, but that's not necessarily always the case. You can be gluten sensitive and have very serious disorders like there's the gluten ataxia, for instance, is probably one of the worst, which is this very serious brain disorder that's caused simply by gluten sensitivity. But unfortunately, with a name like gluten sensitivity, it just doesn't sound very serious. So so people aren't taking it seriously. Doctors aren't taking it seriously. And I think for sure a lot of people are going around undiagnosed. You mentioned earlier that you went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, there's nothing wrong with you, Heather, and gave you a probiotic. Yeah. Do you, do you feel, why is it so hard for people to believe that gluten, a slice of bread, little slither of pasta, might be the cause of all these digestive issues or health issues that they're having. Yeah, well, you know, like I said before, I mean, we've been conditioned as a society to have bread products with every meal and even with snacks. You know, it's not unheard of to have, you know, a bagel for breakfast, pretzels at snack time, a sandwich for lunch, uh, you know, some crackers at, you know, mid-afternoon snack, and then pasta for dinner. 
and and for a long time we thought that that was actually healthy you know as long as they were like whole wheat bread and pasta with you know the right vegetables and stuff like that so so this is a whole like paradigm shift to think that you can't eat any of these things and so it's not just us personally but people all around us that just can't can't fathom that at the same time it seems as though this gluten sensitivity and the rise in celiac disease just came out of nowhere which in a way it did because the wheat that we eat today is vastly different than the wheat that we ate just 50 years ago. That's because it's now genetically engineered to be, um, to have more dense proteins and richer starches. So it actually contains super glutens now and the starch is fattier and more filling than ever before. So, so there are reasons why it has sort of come out of nowhere. But that's why I think it makes it hard for people to believe, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have these issues, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's part of the, the problem. I want to take a statement from your book. It says that gluten causes inflammation in everyone. No one can digest wheat. That's a that's bold right. state. That's a bold statement because you like you, you just said that you have people out there who are saying, that, oh, I didn't have these issues when I was younger. But things have changed a lot. And it's really a bold statement by saying this, but I wanted you to kind of go into that and explain why it's causing the inflammation and why no one can really digest it. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Alessio Fasano, are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. He's probably the world's expert on celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. And he's the one who says that no human can completely digest wheat and that it causes some amount of inflammation in just about everyone. We basically just don't have the enzymes to break it down. And again, this is because, most likely, because it's this genetically modified version of wheat that's really an issue. And wheat is what's known as polyploid. So when it reproduces, it adds on to its genome. So the wheat today is actually three times, its genome is actually three times bigger than the genome of the wheat 50 years ago. So it's, it's adding on to itself. It's becoming more dense. Um, in every way. And I think that's why we don't have the ability to digest it, but our bodies haven't had time to, you know, evolve with it. You mentioned that you had some digestive issues. You had IBS. Do you think that gluten is the culprit for what we're seeing with this rise of digest digestive issues? Because it seems like most people are having IBS or some kind of other related digestive issue but is it because of is gluten that sole culprit of really instigating these digestive issues yeah i mean I, it's hard to say that it's all from gluten i mean certainly gluten is a contributing factor to many digestive issues but and, and but there's also gluten can affect the body without actually even causing digestive issues. There are some conditions where it goes straight to the brain or, you know, gives you a rash or whatever. So it doesn't always cause digestive issues, but certainly it does a lot of the time. Um, at the same time, there are other things that can cause digestive issues like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or candida, which is an overgrowth of yeast. IBS, which can be caused by other foods, FODMAPs and other food allergies. And even there's some even gynecological issues like endometriosis can cause digestive issues. So gluten is certainly, you know, a big culprit, but it's maybe not the only one. And part of maybe the reason why we have so many digestive issues is because of 
leaky gut can be caused from gluten to begin with, but also other things like stress, things in our environment, you know, glyphosate, which is an herbicide, overuse of antibiotic. There's there's probably many different factors that can lead to us being more susceptible in the gut, but definitely gluten is a huge part of it, but probably not the only part. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think gluten is one of those contributing factors. You mentioned that sometimes people can eat something and they break out in a rash or something else might happen. And I wanted to get into that, really talking about the difference between just an allergy and a sensitivity. For example, like a wheat allergy and a sensitivity. What are the differences in that? Yeah, yeah. So a wheat allergy can be manifested in the same way as you know the classic allergy of to anything: itchy, watery eyes, uh, runny nose, scratchy throat, or even swollen throat. Um, and there's also a delayed onset allergic reaction, which doesn't include the immune system response. So unfortunately, it can't be picked up on a skin prick test, but you can also have a, a allergic reaction that way. And that could be manifested through like digestive distress, including even vomiting. And the difference between that kind of delayed onset wheat allergy versus gluten sensitivity is still not, you know, 100% clear because Gluten sensitivity has only been newly classified as an actual real disorder, and it is a real disorder. <laughs> mm -hmm. Despite what friends and family and doctors might say, it has been classified as a, an actual real disorder. But because it's so new, new, there's just not a lot of data on it yet. There hasn't been a lot of study on it. So they're trying to still figure out where the wheat allergy ends and the gluten sensitivity begins, and it could all be somewhat related. But we do know that gluten sensitivity can be associated with autoimmune disorders. So that might set that apart a little bit from the allergy. Yeah, this just came to me. I wanted to ask you this. Do you feel as though with the sensitivity, that's part of the disconnect with most people? Because most people are 48 to 72 hours after they have some kind of symptom. They might even, you know, they might even break out in a rash or something could happen that's just out of the ordinary. They're not really even thinking about, hey, I, ate, I had that slice of bread or I had this roll at dinner two, two days ago. So do you feel like there's that disconnect there? That's why people don't believe it because they're not really in tune with what they ate a couple of days ago. For me, I can't even remember what I wore yesterday. So, right. <laughs> so, so if for those people who are trying to remember what they're eating, half the time we're just shoveling food in our mouth anyway at lunch or we have a job or something. But again, do you right. think that people, because of that disconnect, that they may not believe that there's a sensitivity because they're not really paying attention to what they ate two or three days ago. Sure, absolutely. And in fact, for me, it takes actually about five days before I feel the reaction. Mm -hmm. And so it is it is hard to see. Yeah, obviously, if you break out in hives the minute you eat it, it's clear. But when it takes a few days and, and, and then again, may not even always affect your digestive system, but a lot of times it does. It is very hard to pinpoint where it comes from. But that's why I recommend keeping a food diary. Go for a month and write down everything that you had because nobody can remember what they had five days ago. But if you can look back a couple of days ago within the last week, what kinds of things were you eating? It might be able to pinpoint it a little bit better. Yeah. You self-diagnose yourself, right, Heather? You never, yeah. you, you got a test later on, I think, but you actually ended up self-diagnosing yourself. Is that correct? That's right. That's okay. right. Yep. Yeah. How would you recommend someone doing that? Like you just said, having that food food diary and just maybe taking gluten out of their diet for a couple of days just to see how they feel? 
Well, the protocol is really, if, if you're eating gluten heavily and you're, you're not ready to take it out of your diet yet, but you think it might be causing you problems, it's still a good idea to see if you can go and get a celiac test done while you're still creating antibodies and perhaps maybe have some villus atrophy because all of those things will show up on the tests. But if you go, like I did, because nobody would test me, if you go for a long time without taking, without having gluten, your body will stop producing the antibodies and your gut might start healing. And so when you go for the tests, they won't find anything, and but it could be a false negative. So if you're still heavily eating gluten, I would say first, go see, you know, go to a doctor right away. Don't wait any longer, but see if you can go get your celiac tests taken. And then if it comes back negative or if a doctor refuses, but I, I think these days most doctors hopefully are, are getting on board and will test you. But either way, if, if you're not able to get tested or comes back negative, that that's not a reason to not take it out of your diet. By then, by all means, you know, I would say take it out of your diet, give it a try. There's, there's no harm in taking it out for 30 days and seeing what happens. You mentioned a word, um, and I know sometimes we get scared of words. You mentioned a word called <laughs> villus atrophy. Explain what that is. Right. So the villi are the finger-like projections in your intestine that push food through, um, and they also break it down so that they can absorb nutrients. But in the case of celiac disease, when you eat gluten, it causes an autoimmune reaction, which makes the body attack those villi. And, and eventually they start to atrophy, to die back. So that's what villus atrophy is. And there's several stages of it. So when you go to take a biopsy, they're going to see like if you have a good amount of villus atrophy, then they can diagnose you as having celiac disease. Now, now, what's interesting is there are stages of villus atrophy, um, and the first stage is actually just the beginning stages of inflammation. Villus atrophy hasn't happened yet. So if you have gut inflammation but not villus atrophy, you'll, you'll be told that you don't have celiac disease. But it's very interesting because if it's, if that's, you know, if it's a progressive, which it is, it's progressive, then you would think if you just, you're told, okay, you don't have celiac disease, you just have gut inflammation, so then you go back home and you start eating gluten. Well, what could conceivably happen is that as you continue to eat gluten, your gut will go through the stages of villus atrophy, but by now you've already been told you don't have celiac disease, so you're probably not going to go back for another biopsy. So in my opinion, that's kind of a dangerous way to diagnose celiac disease. Now, some researchers do believe that the first stage, the inflammation is the beginning stages of villus atrophy and of celiac disease. But unfortunately, most doctors don't see it that way. In my opinion, if gluten is causing you inflammation, that's already a bad sign and you probably just want to stop eating it. Now, one of the things that, that just came to me, and, and I don't know uh, whether you might agree with this or, or you may disagree, but our immune system is located mainly in our intestinal tract, in our, in our digestive system. Do you yes. think that because this villus atrophy, when we wear down those little little shags in the intestinal system, if we wear them down too much, it's really lessening our, our immunity? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's lessening our immunity. We're not able to absorb nutrients. All kinds of things start happening once that your intestine starts to break down. And that's why there's 
so many comorbidities that are associated with gluten. In fact, so many that Ron Hogan, who wrote Dangerous Grains, has a list of like 200 comorbidities that are associated with gluten. So all kinds of things can happen to the body. And, you know, there's things like from thyroid disease to malnutrition to carcinomas and migraines. The list goes on forever. So, yes, once that once your gut starts to break down, you know, then things are starting to get really bad. Yeah, I have Ron on the show. <laughs> oh, awesome. I love Ron. <laughs> yeah, I have Ron on the show. And actually, I didn't ask him that question. What are some of the standards? Well, before I ask that, I wanted to ask you about just gluten-free foods because I know – just again, because it's my own personal experience. I remember when I went gluten free, there was a time when I wanted to have pancakes. There was a time when I wanted <laughs> to have a hot dog. And I remember just trying to switch everything out. And then what ended up happening, happening to me was I realized that I had a sensitivity to rice and most uh, mm. products are made out of rice. And now I'm realizing mm. I can't digest rice. So mm. are all these gluten free products necessarily good for us? And are there different substitutes that we might be able to try? I know for me, millet is a little bit better on my digestive system than rice is. So I, I, it's a loaded question. I want to see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can take it in parts. You know, don't try to eat the whole elephant. Just try to eat one bite at a time. Yeah. So let me address the rice first. There are lots of. Okay. Well, first, let's just take it back a step. I, I'm sorry. Are you celiac? I didn't hear if you said you were celiac. No, I'm not celiac gluten sensitive. You're gluten sensitive yeah. too. Okay, like me. But um, so, so most of the research that's been done has been done on celiacs. But it's my belief that we can extrapolate some of this research that's been done on celiacs to us non-celiac gluten sensitive because we just don't have any data for us right now, and we do need to take it seriously. And there's no harm in being a little bit more cautious than not. So when I talk about you know the studies that have been done on celiacs, I think we can still apply it to you and I. Now, there are celiacs that have been shown to have reactions to rice, and there's other celiacs that have been shown to have reactions to millet and some to corn. And so not that all celiacs relate react to all grains, but many celiacs can react to grains other than wheat. And one of the reasons might be because when, this, when the gluten-free diet was first designed back in the 1930s and 40s, it was designed by a Dutch pediatrician. And he found out that his his celiac patients, his children, got better during World War II when their staple cereals were being rationed and they weren't eating them. But then when the war was over and the cereals were plenty again and his children started eating them again, they all got sick. So that's how he made the connection. Now, the cereal grains at the time in the Netherlands were wheat, barley, rye, and oats. They didn't have access to millet or corn or rice or quinoa. So it isn't, it isn't a terrible assumption to say, well, why couldn't other grains be causing us problems too? We just didn't know about these grains at the time. So there's that, you know, that's why I, I, I advocate for the paleo diet because no grains are allowed. And until we, you know, know for sure if one grain or another is bothering us, we might as well take it out of our system. The other thing is that a lot of, well, this gets into a whole other discussion. First of all, did I answer yeah, yeah, all yeah. that there? Yeah, you answered all that. Okay. Answered all that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. So gluten-free substitutes then also are risky because this is this, I have a major problem with this. 
that the FDA allows up to 20 parts per million of gluten in foods that are labeled gluten-free. And that's, to me, mind-boggling because the FDA actually itself did a meta-analysis uh, just a few years before they did the ruling on the gluten-free labeling, which means that they took every study out there that looked at the safety threshold for gluten, for celiacs, and compared them. And their, the FDA's own findings said that they believe that less than 1% of what, sorry, less than one part per million of gluten is safe for people. In fact, some adverse effects start showing up at 0.02, I think, parts per million. I mean, that's ridiculous. We might as well just call it zero, zero parts per million. So basically, no parts per million of gluten is safe, but most gluten-free foods out there, I shouldn't say most, but many are allowed to have up to 20 parts per million of gluten in them. So one of the things you should look for is the GF certified label because I think they test up to five parts per million. So at least it's like there's it's a little bit more stricter of a test. But yeah, any little bit of gluten can still cause problems for people. I know it causes problems for me. Yeah. Do you feel like the FDA is doing enough to to, to make sure that these products that are being on the shelf and saying that they're gluten free are really gluten-free? Are they really safe for people like you and I who have sensitivities to gluten? No, I, I don't think that they're doing anything at all because the FDA it doesn't test for it. Testing is voluntary. And like I said, they still allow, you know, 19, I, I guess I should say 19 parts per million of gluten in product, in food products. And that can be harmful to many people. But the, the reason for doing that was political and economic. It has it had nothing to do with actually caring about the health of a celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitive. We wanted to ask you this as well. Um, you said that food manufacturers, since, and I don't know if this has changed from what I got from your book, is that they're only testing for a part of the we call gliadin. They're not testing for glutenin. Is that correct? Glutenin? Yeah, correct. So, so gluten as most people know, is you know a protein found in wheat and other similar grains, but it's not the only protein in the grains. And then also that gluten protein can be differentiated into gliadin and glutenin, different parts of the gluten protein. And then gliadin can be differentiated again into like 50 different isotopes. So when they're testing for glutenin products, they're testing for only one of those isotopes, alpha-gliadin. They're not testing for glutenin. And they're not testing for the other isotopes, but we can still react to the glutenin and to the other isotopes. So if, if they, there's glutenin in there or there's beta gliadin or gamma gliadin or any of these other isotopes, if it's in that food, their tests won't find it, but we could still react to it. Yeah. I, I actually been witness to this. I used to work in a food sensitivity testing lab here in Fort Lauderdale and, mm. um, what I saw a lot, like I, when I did, they tested me for free because obviously I worked there and I saw that I had a gluten sensitivity, but I knew I had one before even doing the test. But I would see tests come up where people weren't, they were saying they weren't sensitive to gluten, but there was a part of the wheat that they were sensitive to. And I had people that worked with me that were still eating wheat, even though that test came up and said, hey, you're not gluten sensitive, but you do have this allergy or the sensitivity to a part of the wheat, and they would still be eating wheat, which mm. kind of brings me to another question. I don't know if you've ever had this where 
you are having invited to a party or a family gathering or something and they have bread there, they have gluten filled products there and they're telling you, Hey, uh, Heather, go ahead and you could just have this one, this one, this, this one time. What do you do in that situation? I know how I handle it, but what do you do? Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, <laughs> our relatives are sometimes the hardest ones to deal with. Oh, a little bit can't hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I know it is difficult. And, um, I actually caught my dad because we're at thanks, we're at his house for Thanksgiving. And well, I was going to make my own gluten free gravy, but he insisted on doing it. And then I caught him taking the whisk that he was whisking the gluten gravy with and then <laughs> dropping big globs of gluten into the gluten-free gravy and whisking that. Mm-hmm. And I just had to look at him. I'm really sorry, but I can't eat that, you know, and it would, got very offended. I know people get offended and it's, it is a very tricky situation. But you know what? Your health is really important. And if relatives can't understand that, well, Unfortunately, then that's their problem. This is this is something to be taken seriously. And yeah, we have to kind of make sure we don't offend people and whatever. But I, I end up trying to do a lot of the hosting. I, you know, usually host Thanksgiving myself here. Then I'm in complete control mm-hmm. of what's on the table. So that helps a lot. Or when you go to somebody's house, you offer to bring a dish. You bring your own stuff. And then maybe take each person aside and say, listen, th- this is really serious. And if I have even just a small crumb, it really affects me. So, and it's nice and polite a way as possible, right? But we don't need to make a big scene at the dining room table or anything, but just to take people aside and say, so I'm going to have my stuff separate over here. And, um, can you please respect that? Basically. Yeah. I've been called uppity so many times by my family because they're like, you can't eat the stuff that we eat. I'm like, nope, I can't. I can't I'm so eat it. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I know I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I can't eat it, and they don't they don't understand that. I guess now they're they're finally getting it. One of the things that I noticed that 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 you talked about in your book, and this is something from my again my own personal experience, was that when I was eating gluten, I had this this urge to just overindulge in carbs. I would eat bread, and then I would want to eat carb after carb after carb. Does gluten kind of induce that when you're eating? You know, eating gluten and then it makes you want to eat more more carbohydrates? Yes, it does. It does for two reasons. For one, gluten actually contains opioids in it, so it is addictive, which just makes it way more harder. And that's probably why everybody associates it with comfort food, because it feels good when you eat it, and so you want to keep going back to it. Um, But it also has higher glycemic index than sugar, if you can believe it. And so you, you also have this sort of blood sugar addiction where as soon as you know you get a spike of, in the blood sugar and then as soon as it drops you are craving i mean your stomach even starts rumbling i don't know if you have that like oh my god i'm so hungry mm-hmm. you have to go back and eat something else wheat filled to fulfill that craving so yeah you can get stuck in a cycle i noticed that with cereal like with cereal that's made out of out of grains when i was younger i would eat cereal all the time and probably like maybe an hour after eating cereal it was like i just want to go and destroy everything in a refrigerator <laughs> Because yeah. I was just that oatmeal does the same thing to me. And people are always like, well, why don't you eat more? I'm like, I can't eat oatmeal because if I eat oatmeal, the main thing is the oats of the oatmeal. But also it just makes me ravenous. It makes me want to eat more and more and more food when I eat oatmeal. I know. So I, I stay away from it. I don't, I don't eat it at all. It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how that, that thing. You mentioned that you naturally transitioned into paleo because you eliminated the grains. And I think I'm naturally 
uh, gone to paleo too, but sometimes, well, I notice now that I can't eat white potatoes, <laughs> but I do. Okay. I can't either. So you're yeah. not alone. Yeah. I can't eat white potatoes and I can't eat corn and, and the rice. I don't know what happened, but I've taken those out of my diet and noticed that it instantly made me feel, made me feel better. But I think uh, it's maybe, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think it's a spike again in the blood sugar. I mean, it's causing like some kind of, um, sugar resistance but i i you know i don't quote me on that yeah uh corn and rice and white potatoes for some reason uh, they bloat me and and, mm. and i take i've taken them out of my diet and i don't have that bloating issue anymore but i want to get your thoughts on keto because keto seems to be all the rage right now and i know that you were going on into the paleo diet but you did mention keto in your diet that you were a fan of, of jimmy moore who's a friend of mine and mm. You talked about his book, Keto Clarity, in your book. But what are your thoughts on keto? Yeah, no, I think keto is, is an excellent idea for many people to try. I think, first of all, most Americans eat way too many carbs. So cutting down carbs is, can only be a good thing. When you get the majority of your calories from fat, which is what the ketogenic diet is, it's actually very therapeutic for many different ailments because we actually need fat and we've been told for decades that fat's our enemy but we actually need it for good bodily function for the skin for the hair for the organs for everything so so eating more fat is good and reducing your carbs is good and ketogenic diet has often been given to people for things like epilepsy and injuries to the brain and other things so really you can't go wrong with the ketogenic for the diet for the most part but it may not be for everybody. So in my my experience, I did ketogenic for several years and I felt great. And a lot of my digestive distress had quieted down. But then I started CrossFit and something about that and the ketogenic diet was not good for me. It's, it's, it overly stressed my body. And, and so what I learned a little bit from my research is, and there's really not a lot of medical data on this so i would love to see more research on this kind of thing but just from my understanding is that one women need more carbs than men and two the thyroid needs carbs to function properly so and i have a autoimmune thyroid disorder and i'm a woman and i was doing crossfit and i was on the um, ketogenic diet and i think i overly stressed my body so, um, which led to a condition that's similar to endometriosis called adenomyosis. So it was a gynecological disorder that I ended up getting because I was, I think I wasn't getting enough carbs. So it is possible to not get enough carbs, but I did since then stop CrossFit. I also increased my carb take a bit and I started feeling better, but I'm not doing CrossFit these days and I still don't eat a lot of carbs and I haven't actually checked my ketones in years so it could be possible that i'm back in ketosis if not i'm just hovering you know just above ketosis but either way i think reducing one's carbs is a great idea and i think ketogenic diet is great for most people if you're just going to do it you just make sure you know you are getting still enough carbs yeah i experienced something similar i didn't do crossfit but i did a very strenuous workout and i normally work out am i I kind of burn my adrenals out. I think that's a, a thing with, with people with exercises. We think more is always better. And I'm, now I'm doing a lot less and I feel so much better with doing yeah. a lot less and I'm getting really good results with what I'm doing. But I was exercising like a crazy man and 
and I was just feeling bad. My adrenals were all burnt out and I had to repair my adrenals. It killed me to not to have to lay off the gym. But mm. in the long run, it was, it was so much better for me. One of the yeah. things that, another thing I want to ask you about is lectins. The lectins in wheat is which, from what I understand, is the thing that's, that's actually most people are sensitive, sensitive to and are actually causing the inflammation. But I have a two part question here. Yeah. Talk about lectins. What are lectins? And also, because of someone who might be sensitive to the lectins in wheat, does that mean that we could be sensitive to lectins in other foods? Because I know beans are high in lectins, and I tend to eat beans. And I think you mentioned that you eat black beans. Beans, I eat the same thing. But because we have that sensitivity to the wheat lectins, will we necessarily transfer that sensitivity over to things like, like beans? Right. Okay. So lectins are a type of protein that's in our foods, and they have this amazing ability to attach themselves to other organisms um, with a kind of super glue. That's what Peter D'Adamo from Eat Right for Your Type puts it, super glue. They can attach anywhere to our organs, which is really kind of scary, but fascinating at the same time. Like I always thought that when you ate wheat, it was just this inert, dead thing, but it's actually kind of alive and attaching itself to us. <laughs> And so um, these lectins are, you know, proteins, and they're 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 not the same as gluten. They're totally different. So they're they're not related. They're just another part of the wheat plant. So and they can affect people, not just celiacs, but anybody. So WGA is the the acronym for wheat germ agglutinant, which is the lectin in wheat, and it's been shown to cause all kinds of complications for people. So yeah, there's another part of wheat that is toxic to us and that nobody really ever talks about. So you and I are already avoiding wheat anyway, so we probably don't have to worry about that lectin anymore. But yeah, do lectins cause us problems in other ways? So well, I, I said that I, when I first started, I was eating black beans. I don't really eat so many beans now, but I, I, de I definitely advocate for people to take them out of their diet when they're first beginning to heal because they do cause gas and digestive distress and when you're trying to heal your body you don't need any of that and you need to kind of be paying attention to what's happening in your gut so if you take the beans out then you, you have a better chance of kind of knowing what's going on in your gut but does that mean that I think that beans are always a no-no and that are, are all beans bad for all people and I'm not really sure about that. Many dogmatic paleos will tell you that beans are no-no. But if you do believe in Dr. Dadamo's theory, have you? do you know his book, Eat Right for Your Type? Oh, oh, yes. And I had a guy, when I worked at a food sensitivity testing company, I had a guy that I was trying to convert over from that book to get him to start testing people. And he was... Mm. He was a challenge. Oh, really? <laughs> but, oh, yeah, no. he was a, a, a definite challenge trying to get him to, you know, wrap his mind around just seeing something from a different angle. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with it. Okay, well, I, I think it's a great book, and um, I'm a blood type O, so when I look at, you know, what he recommends, I mean, gluten is definitely not allowed, and so are most greens. So a lot of it already kind of aligns with me. But the way he talks about lectins is that lectins are in everything. I mean, they're also in meats and fish and fruits and vegetables. So it's not just beans and it's not just nuts and it's not just wheat. So that's why I sometimes don't understand why paleos, and I'm a paleo myself, but I'm just not very dogmatic about it, mm -hmm. why people pick on beans per se. And they also have phytates, I know, 
And if you don't cook them the right way, they can be poisonous. But if you believe in Dr. Diodamo's theory, then, you know, all foods have lectins in it, and it just depends on our own specific blood type as to how it matches with the lectins of specific foods. And so in my case, I can eat certain beans, but not others, according to eat right for your type. And um, and also Weston A. Price, he believes legumes to be healthy, but you have to go through a lengthy process to cook them properly. So if they're cooked properly and your blood type can take it, then maybe they're okay. I've been a no-bean person for at least five years, but because my gut's been feeling a lot better lately, I've been recently indulging in a bit of hummus from time to time and some a couple of spoonfuls of white beans, you know, which... Ooh, you know, maybe I can't call myself paleo anymore <laughs> because <laughs> I've long, done that. <laughs> how long did it, how long yeah, did it take you to heal to heal your gut? Yeah, years. Yeah, I can explain that next. But I was just gonna say that in Dr. Diadamo's book that that both white beans and hummus are in the neutral category for my blood type. So, yeah, I don't know. I think beans are something. Once you feel like your gut is back on track, that maybe you could experiment with, but be cautious, I guess. And to answer your next question, I, I don't know how long it took me. I mean, it took me years. <laughs> cause, right. You know, I went gluten-free in 2001. And then I went dairy-free in 2008. And soy-free in 2010. And then paleo just a little bit after that. And I still had problems, even though each step of the way I started feeling better. But I still had problems. So after I went paleo and I was still having digestive problems, I was like, what is going on? You know, I thought, you know, it was leaky gut, which it might have been, but which is when you just react to all kinds of food because your gut has been so compromised. But then I went and got tested for SIBO because I thought maybe it was that. And I was really unhappy when it turned out it wasn't because I wanted to, I wanted it to be something that I could fix, you know. Right. <laughs> but, and, but actually the breath test company that the lab that I bought the test from, um, they were really nice and they actually gave me a free fructose test dead after I had taken their SIBO test. And it turns out that that's what I had, fructose malabsorption. So there's a whole list of like fruits and vegetables that I can't eat because of that. Um, so I reduced that and that felt a lot better. And then that's what, around the time I started going keto too because it's like, oh my God, there's so many carbs that I can't eat. I might as well just not eat them, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Instead of figuring out which ones I can and can't eat, just pick a few that I knew were safe and then, then rely on fats for my, my calories. So, and once I went keto, I felt a whole lot better until, like I said recently, the, um, the, the CrossFit and whatever. But my gut's still been healing along the way. And, but there is one, like, major thing also that's important that most of us know is important to deal with, but deep down inside, but we don't actually really do anything about it. And that's working on stress. And stress for me, whenever I get stressed, particularly emotional stress, it goes straight to my gut. So, and, and I actually have had a childhood of emotional abuse and I have not been allowed, I've been conditioned to keep all my emotions inside. So I've been recently having to learn how to allow the emotions to come out, to feel them, mm-hmm. um, and to deal with them, to deal with those things in my life that are causing me emotional stress to either stop them or to figure out how to cope with them. And so that, having done that, was like kind of my last step in healing. I can finally say that, wow, my gut is so much better than it was five years ago and way better than it was ten years ago. And Every once in a while, I have a little, you know, gut flare up, but probably because of some new emotional stress. But I guess that's part of being human. 
And maybe one day I'll have complete control over it, but I don't think I'll ever have complete 100% control over it. But definitely feel that I can lead a comfortable life now and not always feeling about what's happening, worrying yeah. about what's happening down in my gut. Yeah, well, kudos to you because I know for, I talk about that a lot, the emotional part of the thing. And I think that that's mm-hmm. one of the big things that a lot of people miss in their journey and healing. They deal with the physical stuff and take all the supplements, take all the pills, but very rarely do we delve into getting to what I call our emotional muck and, and mm-hmm. dealing with that in, in our true road to healing. Couple more questions for you here. Sure. Um, what, what really one came to mind about, uh, I don't know, I, I seem to have problems with sugar. I don't know if you have problems with sugar, not just fruit sugar, but just mm-hmm. sugar in different products. Like that makes me bloat. And I don't know if you had issues with that as well, being that, you know, both of us share the, you know, the gluten sensitivity. Do you ever have any issues with, with sugar in certain foods? Yeah. So do you mean like specific foods? Like we we're talking about white potatoes or do you mean like processed foods? Yeah, like a, let's say fruit, well, orange juice, that's a fruit juice, but sometimes I'll eat it. I might even eat a piece of candy. And mm-hmm. I know that that one piece of candy will make me bloat because of the sugar that's in it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I don't know if you've, have you guys talked about the FODMAPS diet on your show? Mm-mm, I haven't talked about that. So there's all kinds of different kinds of sugar, and I know that I react, react, excuse me, I know that I react to fructose and fructans, which is one type of sugar. And sometimes people that react to those can also react to polyols, which is like the things you'll find like sorbitol, like some of the um, artificial sugars. They can have, they can cause reactions in some people, but other people may not have problems with those sugars, but with others. So sugar is really a kind of a complex subject and you might want to check out the low FODMAPS diet it's 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 very tricky and I was very depressed when I found out I had to be on it because I was already <laughs> paleo and everything else right, <laughs> right. but it did it did help to, to kind of break down which kinds of sugars I can handle and which ones I can't and for the most part I can't most sugars I can't handle to tell you the truth but I can take berries and I can do grapefruit juice and I can do butternut squash a little bit and sweet potatoes, but definitely not white potatoes. I've had problems with beets. So it is, it's a very complex subject sugar, but I, I would not call you crazy for thinking that you react to it. You definitely do. You might want to figure out if there's some sugars that you can handle and, and some that you can't. Yeah, I just know no candy and stuff like that. It just makes me blow. Final question for you. Is for those people out there, you and I have gone through this. We know that there's some challenges to going gluten free. For a new person that's going gluten free, what are some of the things that you recommend for them to stick to this instead of backsliding back into gluten? Because I know many people who tried it and they go right back, even though they know they're feeling better. What is something that you can do or what? or some recommendations to kind of get them over the hump. Yeah, I mean, I would say the first thing you should do is first go straight to, to the paleo diet. Um, if you try and substitute with gluten-free foods, you're not going to be quite as satisfied as you are with the gluten-free f- foods. So you're always going to try to want to go back and have the real pizza or the real deal often. And you're still not getting out of that carb cycle. If you go straight to paleo, you, you, you're forced to have a whole new lifestyle change. It isn't just about tweaking your diet. 
And it's about really looking at food in a whole different way. And I suggest thinking about all the things that you can eat on a whole foods, yes. grain-free, but whole food diet. There's still wonderful things that you can have. So I suggest focusing on that and not the things that you can't have. And find yourself good bar of gluten, dairy, and soy-free dark chocolate and have that as your little treat. You know, I have some, I have a few little squares daily. That's my little treat. <laughs> and focus on fats. You don't necessarily have to go ketogenic yet, but if, you, if you're already taking gluten and um, I hope other grains out of your diet and, and most bread products out of your diet, then you're already drastically reducing your carb intake. So if you supplement with fat instead, you will probably get over those cravings. And who doesn't like fat, right? Fat's good, right? Bacon and avocado and some people don't like mayonnaise, but people that do like it really like it, you know? So if you supplant with fat, and fat does not make us fat, by the way, even though that's what we've been told for a long time, it's carbs that make us fat, and fat is healthy for you. So if you do that and you think about all the wonderful things that you can eat, I think it'll make it a lot easier. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Heather Jacobson, your book is called Going Gluten-Free. I got it on Kindle, on Amazon. Really quick read, loaded with a lot of information for the audience out there. Is there, do you have a website or someone wants to contact you further? Um, yes, my website is hkjacobson, that's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N dot com. And there's a link to my book there, which also talks about, which also has some of the blog posts, some of my research that led up to the book. There's also a link to some of my paleo recipes. And um, I've got new writing projects underway, so hopefully you guys will sign up and find out when my next book comes out, which will be a full-length manuscript. It's going to be a creative nonfiction book, and the protagonist gluten-free and paleo and is trying to overcome chronic disease. So hopefully it will be um, something most of your listeners will be interested in. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check it out myself. Heather, <laughs> it has been a pleasure having you on Thank you so much.